Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. ArchiCAD is the official BIM software of the Entree Architect community. ArchiCAD BIM software enables design, collaboration, visualization, and project delivery no matter the project size or complexity. With flexible licensing options and a dedicated support team to guide us along the way, ArchiCAD is an ideal choice for firms and projects of any size. I encourage you to reach out and talk to the folks at Graphisoft by visiting our own dedicated webpage at graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect. There's even an exclusive special offer waiting for our Entree Architect community. Go now to graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect and see how Graphisoft is positioned to help make your architecture firm a success. That's graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect. My name is Mark Arlapage and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Bozia Kanani, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thanks for having me, Mark. Uh, it's great to have you here. Uh, Fozia Kanani is the founder of Studio 4, an architecture and interiors firm based in New York City with global projects ranging from workplace to community-centered projects. She received her MR from the University of California, Berkeley, and her previous career as a sociologist in public health continues to have a strong influence on how she approaches design. She's a founding member and currently co-chair of the 
AIA New York Social Science and Architecture Committee, as well as a co-founder and board vice president of Design Advocates, a nonprofit organization established in March 2020 for architects to share resources and collaborate on efforts to serve the public good through pro bono projects, research, and advocacy. She is a core organizer for the Design as Protest Collective, a group of anti-racist designers dedicated to design justice in the built environment. Fosio, welcome, and thanks for joining me. Thanks again. Uh, let's start off with your story. That's where I like to start with every episode because I want to learn a lot about you, where you came from, where what inspired you to become an architect, um, and share uh, maybe who or what inspired you and, and offer that story to where we find ourselves today. Sure. Um, this is a story that I love to tell, actually. Great. Um, because I think so much of being an architect comes from your general life experience and your own history. And, um, and so mine sort of starts with my parents who were refugees um, from the country of Uganda in East Africa in the early 1970s. And um, some people may know the history, but others may not. So um, there was a military coup of the government um, and the head of the military took over, who was a man named Idi Amin, um, who was a, ended up being a pretty uh, pretty um, harsh dictator. Um, and uh, my family is of Indian, uh, Southeast Asian Indian descent. And, um, and so all of the Indians that lived in Uganda were given three days to leave the country or they oh, would wow. be jailed. And so my family had been in Africa for probably two or three generations at that point. And, mm. um, and so everyone just sort of had to pack a suitcase and, um, you know, the British came in and sort of, uh, had flights ready for people to leave. And so families and people ended up either being, um, going to Britain or they went to Europe or some went to Australia. Um, and so my family went to the UK and, um, a few months after, my dad and uh, one of his cousins traveled to Canada and sort of said, hey, there's like jobs here. There was a refugee program. Um, and so brought over, you know, my mother and my sister and my aunts and uncles and my grandparents who are still alive. Um, and they all kind of settled in Ontario. Um, and then I was born there uh, after they settled in. And, um, you know, they they had sort of factory jobs and um, for for a number of months. And then my father was a, was trained as a textile engineer and um, he somehow got an opportunity in the U.S. And so my immediate family moved uh, to Vermont, um, which I, I will say for my parents, winter was something they never knew in their whole <laughs> lives. And so to see snow for the first time, I remember hearing the stories. Of that and not thing. just snow, Vermont yeah. snow. Like Canada snow and then Vermont snow. Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And so then I think when I was about three, we moved um, to New Hampshire. So sort of going south um, slowly. Uh and I had another sibling bo born there. And then we moved to North Carolina, which was much more uh, their climate, I will say, hot and humid. Um, and so I spent most of my childhood 
in North Carolina and um, had a fourth sibling that was born there. Um, my parents where where in North Carolina in Durham, North Carolina, and because North Carolina is or it was a major hub for textiles. Um, that's kind of what drew my parents down there. Um, and my dad, especially for his work. So, um, you know, they settled there, they built their first house, you know, they raised a family. Um, but through, through all of that, they were very adamant about trying to retain their culture and their religion. Um, and especially with us. And, you know, I think it's interesting for immigrants because there's some level of wanting to assimilate, but there's another part of that where you want to retain like your heritage. Right. And so I think that's, that's a balance that a lot of, um, I think immigrants to this country are, are trying to figure out. And so part of that retaining heritage was us traveling and any vacation we had, whether it was a three-day weekend or um, my parents taking us out of school, we were going to see our family. And so on a three-day weekend, we would drive, we would do a 16-hour drive to Canada so my parents could see their siblings and we could see our cousins because they were so used to growing up with those people. And similarly, they would take us out of school for months and we would go to India or we would go to Africa and see our families. And, and part of those trips, was seeing architecture for me um, yeah. and and sort of understanding the history of my culture or other cultures, you know, we, we traveled a lot. Um, and that was one thing. My parents, you know, were very frugal with money, but there was one thing they would spend it on and it was travel. And so growing up, I saw, you know, more parts of the world by the time I was in middle school than most people in North Carolina see in their whole lives. And yeah. And the architecture was a huge part of that for me. And sort of, I, I, at an early age, I, I had an interest in sort of like archaeology. Of course, Indiana Jones was like a big thing during during my uh, childhood. And so it was like archaeology and architecture and history and seeing these ruins around the world um, was really what founded my love of architecture. And Did actually you're... seeing my parents build their own house and yeah. I was like six or seven years old and seeing that whole process and going to the construction site was pretty fascinating. Did your parents sort of um, guide you to architecture or did it just be sort of the interest sort of grow naturally from your experiences? Um, it was, it was definitely um, my own interest. Mm -hmm. uh, as some people may know and some people may not know, but for immigrants, they want their children to be doctors, lawyers, um, right. accountants. Architects are not on the list. Yeah, architects are not on the list. Um, and so, yeah, it it was sort of something I just sort of developed. And I think what's interesting is my dad is an engineer um, or was an engineer. My mother um, is very creative. She was a seamstress and then she became an interior decorator like later in life. And so it's like this weird crossover between their skills and yeah. Um, yeah, and architecture was kind of that perfect night. Do you remember the moment where you realized there was a profession of architecture and this is something you could do? I do, and this is like very cliche, and I've actually seen it in a movie, um, but it was when I was in high school. I was 15, and we went to India to see my grandparents, and that was the trip we went to see the Taj Mahal. Um, and I, I, that would do it. <laughs> and 
you know, and it wasn't even the actual Taj Mahal. It was actually the buildings that were surrounding it, which no one really knows about. Right. Um, there's like multiple buildings that were constructed as part of this compound. And um, and it was there where I said to my parents, like, I think I want to be an architect. And, um, you know, they sort of ignored me because they thought that I should be a doctor. But... <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully they, they've come around. Yeah, took a little while, but yeah. So, so you, so you went through California, uh, University of California. How'd you pick, uh, University of California, Berkeley? So I actually did my undergrad. Um, I went to UNC Chapel Hill, which was a state school for me and they didn't have architecture. So I studied sociology and public health and I had a whole career in that. Um, and then when I was about 26, I decided I wanted to go back to school and I thought, I'll either sort of get a degree, um, I'll get the MD, or I'll get an MPH, which is a master's in public health, or maybe actually I'll get an MRC and like really try this because I realized there were three-year programs for people who didn't have architecture backgrounds. And, and what I came to also realize from my work in public health is that there is a direct correlation between quality of life and public health and housing. And so I sort of thought, oh, like I have this base in public health. Architecture could actually be the tool yeah. to improve the quality of lives for others um, versus going to become a doctor and going to work in third world countries or getting an MPH and trying to work on policy changes. And, and so that's really like how I came back to architecture. Um, and so I ended up going to Parsons uh school of design in new york for a year at that prior i was living in dc working for the nih and um and i went to do the pre-architecture program just to make sure that i was making the right decision and and they help you put a portfolio together because of course i didn't have one and and then i applied um you know to a number of schools and when i had gone to visit schools berkeley had been on my top choice because they were the only program at the time that had a concentration in um, social and cultural factors in design. And I was sort of like, okay, this is it. This is the culmination yeah. of how all of these pieces come together. Um, so that's how I came to Berkeley. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that you you had the career in, in sociology, went back to this passion for architecture, and now have brought these things together with your interest in, in people and housing and health and all of that, um, it's a perfect example of the flexibility of what architecture can be. Um, I love that idea about architecture is that architecture can be anything we want it to be. Um, and so how does, how does that um, manifest for you and your firm? Um, I think it manifests in a couple different ways. Um, one, the first one is that it's really about the people and that that is our main focus, like the human side of design of, um, and the people who we're collaborating with, whether it's clients or our contractors or consultants um, or even just in our office, like we're, we're, we're very focused on um, the human side of things. And, and that design for me, architecture is a tool. It's, it's not actually the focus. Um, it's like a means to an end. Actually, yeah. uh, explain, explain that go deeper on that. What does that mean? Um, so that 
in I guess the way that I would think of it is um, for us, the most important thing is that the spaces ultimately improve the quality of life for the users um, and the stakeholders. And, and if a project doesn't do that, it's not successful for us. And it, and it can look like anything. That's sort of the other part of it is, is I know a lot of architects and architecture firms sort of have signature styles. And, and for us, because every single client we have is different in some way, the design is ultimately always different. And, and I've had people ask me that, you know, like, what's your firm's signature style? Right. And, yep. and I sort of say that doesn't exist in our office um, because every project is different. Right, you're designing to the people. Yeah. Um, so I think that's that's sort of the first part is the focus is really different. Um, I think the outcomes are different also. Um, and then the process of how we get to design is really different, which for me is based in my education and sociology and work in public health, where it's all research and data driven. Interesting. So um, how do you do that? How do you do the research and the, and the data part? So we, I mean, we literally, I literally took the methods that we used in those other fields and applied them to architecture, which now is becoming more common. Um, I think, especially as we talk about stakeholder engagement, which is kind of a buzzword right now, um, especially in community-based projects. But, you know, we have a whole slew of questionnaires that we use, you know, whether they're surveys, we do focus groups with all of our clients. Um, we do interviews, we do one-on-ones with them. We actually go observe them in their existing spaces um, and, and not even talking to them, just like really watching them for the whole day and seeing how they're using their space to, to understand, you know, what is it, what's working in those spaces for them, what's not working, what what's happening in the space that they can't articulate to us, but just is sort of innate behavior. Um, so for, for us, it's a really in-depth approach to a project, I guess, of what you call pre-design research. Um, yeah, and then we put all of that data together into graphics and visuals for our clients and kind of present that back to them. And, you know, I think usually they're, they're sort of like, oh, it's great to kind of see this on paper and how this turns into data. Um, but there are always some surprises, too. What kind of work do you do? Um, so our projects uh, range basically between three areas. Um, we do corporate workplace, uh, which are office projects, and we do that globally. That's um, what kind of takes us around the world. We do residential projects, which is mostly custom residential, um, both in New York City and also we do ground up work outside of the city um, and around the country. Um, and then we we do community-based work as well. So it's usually projects for nonprofits, you know, where they're community centers or community-driven um, work. You said you work all over the world. So so how did that happen? I mean, it's you you focused a, a firm based on designing for humans, designing for people. It primarily has focused itself around office space, um, residential and community work. How did it go from locally in New York City to a global practice? So this is actually another one of my favorite stories, which 
is we have a global client um, that is so solely for workplace projects. Um, and uh, the name of their company is MSCI. And uh, they're sort of the research side of financial advising for clients. Um, and, and they also establish some of the funds that maybe your 401k uh, program uh, is made up of, and and they have a a pretty big push for sustainability and environmental kind of funds around the world. So so their mission is is um, while very corporate is actually uh, really conscious as well in terms of ESG um, ideas and. And so they were looking for someone to come in and kind of help them redesign one of their cafes in their New York headquarter office. And um, their contractor said, oh, we've worked with this young new architect. You should really, you know, maybe meet with her. Maybe she can help you with some small aspect of your office. And so I went to their office and, and you know, helped them with the kitchen. And then I said, you know, your office, while it's great, like it's not really representative of who you are and the work that you're doing because I just assumed you were another fintech company and actually you're not. Um, you do really socially conscious work and and that is not reflected in this space. Um, and they took that the the head of corporate services that I spoke to. Um, you know, I said I hope I'm not being too forward or too rude, but it could be better. And and they took it back to the head of HR, the global head of HR. And so I ended up having this interview and they said, we're looking for a new global architect and we wanted to talk to you. And we're interviewing two other global firms, um, one who we've worked with for 10 years and another new one. And so you have, you know, this opportunity. And, and those two teams came in with like 10 people for their interview and mine was just me. <laughs> um, and this was back in 2017, and and then they they actually hired me and said, let's try this. Why don't you do our first, you know, new office project that's happening in Hong Kong this year? And let's see how it, it's pretty small project. Let's see how it goes. And and so since then, we've been the global architect for them. We've worked on probably 15 offices now. We've got seven projects in progress right now. Um, that are going to be done by quarter two in 2023. So, um, yeah, so that's how the global work came about. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. There's a lot to love about being an entrepreneur architect, right? But trying to figure out our financials on our own is not one of those things. Luckily, we have FreshBooks, the all-in-one accounting solution that's built for business owners like us. FreshBooks takes all the not-so-fun parts of running a business, from building and tracking invoices, to managing online payments, to organizing expenses, and automates them with features like the digital bills and receipt scanner, saving you up to 11 hours a week in the process. It's also super easy to get up and running. And the award-winning FreshBooks support team, they are always available to answer any questions along the way. Compare that to some of the other financial management tools out there. Try FreshBooks for free for 30 days, no credit card required. 
Go to freshbooks.com slash architect to get started today. That's freshbooks.com slash architect. So what will you do with 11 more hours each week? This episode is brought to you by rcat.com. We all have that one story, that one project that had such a unique situation that it required a solution that you had rarely considered before. We share these stories in private professional circles with our friends and our colleagues, but there has never been a collection of these stories of conflict and triumph all in one place until now. Detailed is a podcast series that features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who share their insights and expertise as they highlight some of the most complex, interesting, and oddball building conditions that they have ever encountered and the ingenuity it took to solve them. Join host Sharice Lakeside, AKA CSI Kraken, a senior specifications writer at RDH Building Science as she uncovers lessons learned to help you navigate similar challenges that may arise in your next project. Detailed, an original podcast by ArtCat. Listen and subscribe right now at artcat.com slash podcast. That's rcat.com slash podcast, A-R-C-A-T dot com slash podcast. Detailed. Every building has a story. This episode is brought to you by the Entree Architect Community Annual Meeting, the business conference for small firm entrepreneur architects. Learn more at smallfirmconference.com. If you could build a business conference for small firm entrepreneur architects, what would it be? Since I launched Entree Architect back in 2012, I've been listening. I've been watching what members want and learning what we need. And in November, we will gather in Austin, Texas to connect, to celebrate, to honor, and to learn. The Entree Architect Community Annual Meeting was inspired, designed, and launched for you. We invited top speakers to share fast-paced, get-to-the-point, TED Talk-like presentations that will provide you with the information that you need so that you can build the firm that you want. On day one of the conference, following a lineup of fantastic speakers, we'll discover the connection between mental health and our financial wealth with licensed clinical professional counselor, Joyce Martyr. And then we'll be honoring three architect members of the community at the inaugural Entree Architect Honor Awards. On day two, we'll hear from more great speakers, then dive deep into the successful future of our firms with Brian McCartney of ArcMark at a 90-minute strategic planning program. We'll have some fun building models with Kenya and Matt Forget of Sticks and Bricks, and we'll learn from an icon, Gene Cohn, founder of KPF, at the day two keynote. We plan this event to start with an evening reception on Tuesday, November 1st, and end on Thursday afternoon on November 3rd so that you'll have time to connect with friends post-event to discover the city of Austin and its amazing architectural sites on Friday and into the weekend. We've been approved by the AIA for 12.75 CEUs, and everyone will leave with a cool bag of swag. Whether you're a member of the Entree Architect Community Facebook group, a member of the Entree Architect Academy membership, or a small firm architect practicing anywhere in the world who wants and needs the support and connection of like-minded architects, 
the Entree Architect Community Annual Meeting Small Firm Business Conference is for you. With generous support from our friends at Monograph, visit smallfirmconference.com now for tickets, and we will see you in Austin this November. That's smallfirmconference.com. Please visit our sponsors today and thank them. Thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. So you you were up against two global firms, established global firms. One worked for the company for 10 years. Um, they come in with a full team, which probably also had marketing backup, right? Full marketing proposal. You show up. You probably spent the night putting together your proposal, presented it, and you won. So, so my question is, how did you win? What do you think uh, about what you presented to them uh, had them choose you over the firms that they've been working with and had the, had the, the backup? I honestly think it was the way that I talked about the people. Um, it what I talked very little about design actually. Yeah. In that discussion, and and I didn't show them any designs or anything like that. You know, we we talked about the impact of design on people, and and what the positive effects. Um, space and design could have on them. Um, and, you know, it was an hour long discussion. I had a few slides, but not that many. And um, it was a conversation. And it was something that I felt I feel very strongly about. So it was easy to kind of right, convince yeah. them. And someone who's the head of global HR, like it's all about people for them as well. And so yeah. there was this um, kind of this alignment and values that was just immediately present. Yeah, yeah. I, I like a asking that question because there's people listening who who um, may be in that position, right? And and yeah. have to go up against these big firms and, and just being real and just connecting human to human makes a big difference. And I mean, just to be really frank about it, I mean, I felt I had no chance. Like I am, at that point, there were two people in my firm I am a woman of color. These firms are like large global firms with like, no offense, Mark, but what white men at the home and like, yeah. you know, their establishments. And so I just sort of thought, oh, maybe I'll just keep helping them with the cafe and that's sort of it. But yeah. I think they were sort of open to, to seeing what somebody else who was different could do. Right, right, yeah. That's a fantastic story. So, so your work with um, with human behavior and and understanding how be human behavior is affected by architecture has also grown beyond your architecture firm. You're you're the co-founder and board vice president of Design Advocates. What's Design Advocates and what do you do there? So, um, again, this is super relevant to people who are sole practitioners or who run small firms. Um, but, you know, in March, 2020, we, everyone who owned a small firm or was a sole practitioner thought their architecture careers were over. And, um, you know, work just came to a screeching halt. Uh, the whole world came to a halt, right? right? Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, by the time April rolled around, we didn't have 
very much work at all. And we were working on office standards and sort of trying to keep the team busy. Um, and a friend of mine who, a friend of a friend of mine who also owns a small firm um, in New York City said, messaged me, texted me and said, hey, there, there's this call that's happening once a week for small firm owners. There's like a group of 10 of us. You know, I think maybe it would be great for you to come. And um, and he said, oh, and I said, yeah, that would be great. And he said, have you applied for a PPP loan? And I said, yes, I did actually this week. Like our financial advisors helped us do that. And, and we actually got it like within a week. And he said, that's amazing. Everyone's been trying to do this and no one's been successful yet. So you should definitely come to the call so you can help us. Yeah. And so I, I went to this call and, um, and I met, you know, this whole cohort of people who own small firms. And it was, it was really like a therapy session for us because we were all freaking out about what was going to happen. But, and everyone was trying to apply for a PPP loan. So we, you know, we all sort of helped each other, which is also something that, in my experience had not, I had not seen in the world of architecture was um, the sense of community amongst practitioners uh, did not exist because the field and sort of the industry and the way it's set up is based on competition, right? And winning projects. Um, and to me, that was so foreign coming from uh, a place of public health. <laughs> where it's all about community. And right. I never understood that. And, um, and so like through my architecture career, I've never had any issue when somebody's asked me, Hey, how did you figure out the fees for this project? Or like, what are, what do you pay your employees? Like, I always am open to sharing that. And I was shocked that other people weren't. And when I got on this call, it was the first time in my, you know, 11 years of owning a firm where people were open and were like, let me help you do this. Or what do you, you know, how did you do this? And, and the sharing of knowledge was really um, this glimmer of hope amongst everything that was happening in the world that was really terrible. Um, and so after a few weeks, you know, there were six of us um, on the call who were firm owners and, and we were sort of brainstorming like, well, I was sort of saying, God, I should have been the doctor. My parents told me I could be in the ER right now helping COVID patients was the first thought. And then, and then I was like, no, 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 that's, that's, that's not the right answer. That's not going to help now. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so we started brainstorming, like, how could we actually with design skills help? Because there are clearly a whole slew of issues that are going to come up in the next few weeks that have to do with space design because of COVID. Right. And so um, we started making kind of cold calls to our clients or nonprofits we knew or people who were really active and um, in underserved neighborhoods in New York and sort of said like, how can we help, you know, in places where they can't afford design and it's impacting you know, either their businesses, which is their livelihood for most of these people, or it's affecting their ability to provide social services to a greater community. Um, and even education, right? Like schools, that was a huge thing. And so we, we started, you know, just getting cold calls 
about like, hey, like I have a small restaurant. Like, do you think you could help me with open streets or open restaurant kind of planning? Um, and, you know, we ended up forming this nonprofit called Design Advocates, which, you know, the the baseline premise was to provide pro bono services to help people survive through the pandemic. Um, so that's kind of the, the story there. So so what's the future of Design Advocates as the pandemic is coming to an end, hopefully? Um, what What is the vision for Design Advocates? Yeah, so it, it quickly expanded um, beyond what we expected because everybody wanted to help. And, you know, by the end of the first month, we had 50 volunteers. By the end of 2020, we had 200 volunteers. Um, and so what we decided to do was to create like a couple of different arms within design advocates. So there, there is the design services kind of section, which, you know, the projects are still going. Um, and, uh, you know, we generally are helping people who can't afford design services, but would uh, benefit from it, or it would improve the work that they're doing. Um, and, you know, it ranges anywhere from like community theaters to places of worship to um, transitional housing for women with children in the Bronx. Um, and, and then we sort of have our um, advocacy arm um, and so we're, we're trying to make change, uh, within public policy that has to do with the built environment in the city. So, you know, some, we have groups that are focusing on open streets, which is a big topic in New York City right now. Um, and as well as sort of, uh, tapping into education at an early age and, and sort of helping young people understand that architecture and design can be a career path for them, even though they've never been exposed to it. And and understanding that if they go down this path, they actually have a say in what happens in their neighborhood and to their own community. Um, so that's that's kind of been another interesting arm that's developed. We have people who are teaching courses as part of design advocates um, at local institutions here in the city. Um, so it's it's still evolving. Um, and, you know, we, we're in the process of trying to figure out finances and how do we sustain this? But, um, I think the bottom line is that most of us became architects because we wanted to make a difference and right. we wanted to make change. And, and that's what keeps people coming back, I think, to design advocates. So if you want to learn more about design advocates, it's designadvocates.org. You can go check out what they're doing there. I'm assuming people, if they want to volunteer and help out and get involved, they can do that there as well. Yes, for sure. We have we have a, a link on the page where you can sign up, or if you have a project or a client who needs someone you know that needs pro bono design services, they can also um, there's a link for that. They can fill out information as well. Is it local to New York City or is it national, global? It is not local to New York City. Um, most okay. of the work is in New York City, but we've we've done work in California. We've done work in Michigan. Okay, so uh, anybody who's interested yeah. should check it out. The other thing that in my introduction of you, you, you um, you're also the core organizer for the Design as Protest co Collective. What's that? So um, it's uh, another group of amazing 
um, architects, designers, planners, landscape architects, graphic designers, um, people in fashion who, who really are trying to dismantle and change um, the existence of systemic racism within the built mm -hmm. environment and the way it's practiced, the way that it's taught, and the way it manifests in spaces. So how, how do they do that? Is that through speaking, presenting, protesting? How does it, how does that, how does that happen? Yeah, I think it happens through all of those things. Um, you know, there, there are people who teach who are trying to change the curriculum of architecture, even as high as sort of, um, you know, NCARB and, and, what we're required to complete to become an architect in terms of education experience and even exams yeah. um, and sort of challenging some of those systems um, to say that they're not equitable. Um, and then, as I said, coursework, we're trying to change like what actual uh, students are taught in architecture programs, right? It's, it's been very much about a specific history or sure. specific yeah. people and specific types of architecture. And so like, how do we expand that to be more inclusive and equitable yeah. and diverse? Um, and then there are like, you know, really um, like physical and direct actions that we're taking, like um, doing installations. And uh, we have one project called tactical protest where we've created these, um, a package of signage that you can take to protests that are talk about the inequities in the built environment and in policy. And we printed them in like 10 different languages. And so, you know, the messaging is there. Um, and then one other specific project um, that I'm working on with, with a group within design uh, as protest is um, healing hostile architecture and and so we applied um, uh, through an RFP um, that was hosted by the Design Trust for Public Space. Um, and they were re really looking for projects, um, project proposals that were going to um, look at the impact of the built environment on public health. So, of course, for me, that was kind <laughs> there of you like, go. I've yeah. been waiting for this. Um, and so one of the things that we really think about in design as protest is how public space, um, one, is inequitable, and two, the effects that it has on people um, who who are experiencing it. And, and so this project is really focused on hostile architecture, what it is, the existence of it, how it manifests in public space, and then the impacts that it has on the houseless community. Um, and so we're, we're going to be embarking on a research project, um, kind of looking at the history and sort of the policy that uh, has supported hostile architecture, and then ultimately looking um, at how we can change that and and what do new models of public space look like that are supportive yeah. and healing right what's the alternative yeah 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 very interesting so if you're interested in learning more about design as protest it's a dap as in design as protest dapcollective.org um, we'll have links to all of that on the show notes um, the one final question that i ask everybody Fauzia. Um, is what is one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? Um, 
When you say build today for a better tomorrow, the word that comes to mind is investment for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think most people would agree that the field of architecture needs to change. It's shifting, but it needs to shift faster. Um, and so, you know, I, I would say to small firm owners, you know, get involved in your community. Um, look to see how you can be supportive of people in your community through design um, and, and think about really who you're mentoring, right? I mean, yeah. w- one of the, the beauties of having a small firm is that you have a lot of day-to-day interaction with the people you engage with, whether it's in the community or whether it's people you're collaborating with or people within your firm. And, and so, you know, Think about where you're hiring from and who you're hiring from. And especially if you're going to school, you know, in New York City, we have Columbia, right, for architecture. But we also have City Tech, which is a technical school, which is the lowest funded um, New York uh, uh, state school um, that's part of the system. And so, you know, I'm sure that there are eager students there that are looking for a career in architecture that could use your experience and your knowledge um, for them to to find a path down this road of architecture. Yeah, what a what a fascinating story you have to to hear where your family came came from, how you got to New York City, um, the work that you do, the impact that you're making. Uh, it's inspirational, and I appreciate you for doing the work that you do. Um, it's been a really, uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you here. Thank you so much for having me and for listening and being interested. Um, it means a lot. Her name is Fauzia Kanani. The her, if you want to go check out her firm, it's Studio Four NY dot com. So F O R New York Four New York uh, studio for ny.com. That was confusing studio for ny.com. That's more clear. It, the links will all be on the show notes. Uh, Fauzia, thank you for dedicating yourself to architecture and making that change because, uh, you're making it a massive impact on people every day and the work that you're doing, the global work that you're doing. Um, it's, it's inspirational to hear not only your story, but the work that you're doing, and how um, architecture, not architects, have uh, an influence in the way the world works, right? Not only through the built environment, but with, the, like you said, with the interaction that we have with other people, um, whether they're clients or the people that are working and living within our architecture, um, you're doing that and you're demonstrating that and you're a role model. So I appreciate you for the work that you do. And I appreciate you coming by here at the Entre Architect Podcast. Thank you so much again, Mark. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, and share a link to this episode with a friend. That's how Entree Architect has grown to serve thousands more architects just like you. Share a rating, write a review, and share a link to this episode with a friend. Links to our sponsors and all the resources we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network, the network dedicated to architects, engineers, and construction pros. 
Listen and subscribe to all the shows at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And visit smallfirmconference.com for more information about our lineup of speakers, check out the agenda, and purchase your tickets for the Entree Architect Community Annual Meeting, the business conference for small firm entrepreneur architects. We do have a few tickets still available, but we're almost sold out. So visit smallfirmconference.com and register today. And before we wrap up, a special thank you to our partners at Graphisoft for helping our community of architects make the transition to BIM with ARCHICAD software. Go now to graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect and see how Graphisoft is positioned to help make your architecture firm a success. Visit graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect to learn more. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage. Love, learn, and share what you know. Hey, before we sign off, I wanted to share something with you. An update. Some bonus content for you. I wanted to share my progress with learning to BIM. You know, you've probably heard that Entree Architect and Graphisoft have, has partnered up. The Entree Architect community now has partnered up with, with Graphisoft and ARCHICAD. I wanted to share some background, how we got to this relationship and why I'm choosing ARCHICAD as my tool. This is not an ad. This is just an update on my journey to learning to BIM. Um, I've been practicing architecture since graduating architecture school in 1993. That's a long time ago. And I've been running my own architecture firm since 1999. And since I've started, I've been using AutoCAD. I've been using AutoCAD as my primary software uh, to design and develop our projects. And now I've just done the math. It's, it's almost 30 years into this with me. I'm 52 years old. And after several false starts of trying to transition, today's the day. Well, this week is the week. I'm finally committing to learning to BIM. And I know learning to BIM. It, I, I love that phrase. I know BIM is not a verb. It just, I just love the way that sounds. For me, I know that uh, I'm not only learning software, I'm learning a new practice, I'm learning a new method, I'm learning a new process. So for me, I'm learning to BIM. So that's why I keep saying that. Um, so if you have been listening here for the past couple of weeks, I've announced a new partnership with Graphisoft. Graphisoft is now the official partner of Entree Architect and the Entree Architect community. And as the founder of Entree Architect, a community of tens of thousands of entrepreneur architect business owners, when I personally decided to finally make the commitment and learn to BIM, I looked at which software I wanted to use. And this wasn't very difficult, seeing that I've been researching and I've been learning and I've been, <laughs> I've been studying, right? I've been procrastinating, okay? That's what it's called. I've been procrastinating, but I've been, I've been researching and learning and studying all my options for decades, right? We all know what we need. I knew I needed to transition from CAD to BIM for more than a decade. But the fear of learning a new process, running a business, running an architecture firm, the excuse of not having the time, right? The overwhelm of which software to use, it all kept me from progressing. Fear kept me from choosing, from learning and from executing. And I'm quite certain that this constant procrastination and not choosing to grow 
has caused me thousands of hours. It cost me thousands of hours unnecessarily drafting and has cost me thousands, probably 10,000, maybe, maybe even hundreds of thousands of dollars in time spent in AutoCAD throughout all this, this time, right? All these decades. AutoCAD has been a great tool. Don't get me wrong. AutoCAD has been fantastic. I mastered AutoCAD and it has done what it's needed to do, but it doesn't do what BIM does and it's time to make that transition. So I made the commitment and I committed to ARCHICAD. And what I've learned in all that time of researching and learning and executing and procrastinating, what I've learned is that ARCHICAD has many of the same tools and processes that I already know from using CAD. It's great. It's a great transition tool, right? Going from CAD to BIM, ARCHICAD is a great option for that. It has all the advantages of a full BIM package, but it also is intuitive to CAD users. And over a decade ago, this is probably even more important, I left my PCs in the past, right? I am not a Windows guy. I'm not a PCs guy. I'm a fully established uh, Apple user, right? Apple products, and I, and I run a top-of-the-line Mac studio. I love my Macs, right? So I will never return to that that world of Windows and PCs ever. So Revit is out for me from the beginning. Um, before we even start the conversation, I want software that is native to my Mac. Revit has been promising that for years and they haven't delivered. ARCHICAD was built for Mac and it's always run native on the Mac OS. And for, for those of you who are still running PCs, ARCHICAD works native for you too. So no matter what, pro, what machine you're using, ARCHICAD works, whether it's a Mac or a PC, good to go. Then, so, so it came down to one other thing. It came down to the people behind the product. That's important to me. Who are the people behind the product? Which software will support me and you, right? My community. Because as with everything I do here at Entree Architect, this isn't only about me. I know that there are thousands of architects listening right now, you maybe, who are just like me, running CAD every day, knowing that you want to move to BIM. So I started talking to the people at ARCHICAD. I connected with Mark, and I connected with Alex, and Mary, and Zoltan, and all the people, the team behind ARCHICAD. Not just the software and the company and all the things that it does, I wanted to talk to the people. We met several times for months, preparing for this partnership that we have now, and I can confidently say that our friends at Graphisoft, they are committed to supporting you and me as people, as individuals, and all our, our small firms, and our transition from CAD to BIM, okay? They're there for us. So here we go. That's the background. Here's the update. This is what I've done to get started. This week, I've done four things to move my progress forward, okay? Step one, here's what I did. Step one, I installed ARCHICAD on my Mac. And this is a process. This is, a, this is a, a, not a quick thing. This is something that takes some time, but it's straightforward and simple. So it's done. ARCHICAD is now on my Mac and I'm ready to roll. Step two, I gained access to the ARCHICAD Essentials Package. This is important. The ARCHICAD Essentials Package is an $800 training program that Graphisoft is providing to you and me, to our community for free. When you purchase a subscription to ARCHICAD through our dedicated webpage, you will be automatically, uh, you, you'll automatically gain access to that training, the, the essentials package. 
And this one was really important to me because I didn't want just the software. I wanted training. I can't learn to BIM if I don't have training. And so I negotiated with them and said, hey, we need something more than just the software. We need some training. And so they, they put together the, an option to access. This is a training program that they already have. It's $800. It's free to us when you purchase uh, uh, ARCHICAD. So you can check that out at graphisoft.com slash US slash EntreeArchitect. Again, this is not an advertisement. This is an update. I'm just telling you what I'm doing here. Um, you can learn about the opportunity and access to that software, uh, that training at graphisoft.com slash US slash EntreeArchitect. That's our dedicated page on the Graphisoft website. Okay, so that's step two. Step two, I gained the training package. Step three. I started, yes, after all these decades, I finally started learning how to BIM. I scheduled a block of time, this is how I'm doing it. I blocked out a time every Friday dedicated exclusively to learning to BIM. Everything else is going to be turned off every Friday for three hours in the afternoon, and I am going to make progress on learning this program. And truthfully, this is a very humbling experience. This is not, this is not, you know, start it up and start using it, right? This is. This is, I'm starting at the very beginning. I'm learning to draw lines and circles, right? This is, this is frustrating for me. Uh, I just want to use it, right? But I'm sure, I know that if I start at the beginning, we will make progress and eventually I'm going to be able to master this program as well. Um, and I can tell you as a 50 plus year old, it's pretty awesome to learn a new program, to learn something new. I haven't learned a new program or a new process like this in a long time. And so for me, this is, it's exciting to learn from the beginning and knowing that eventually I'm going to master this. Like I've mastered so many other programs. This is a program that I'm going to, to master. So I'm really looking forward to, to this, but I could tell you, you have to start at the beginning lines and circles. That's where I am. Um, and I'll keep you posted as I progress with that. But that leads me to number four. This is the fourth thing I did today or this week. Um, I set up a Facebook group dedicated to learning to BIM just for us, just for the rest of us and me who are learning to BIM. It's at facebook.com slash groups slash um, learning to BIM, all one word. It's another Entree Architect group on Facebook. It's private just like our main group and just like our main group. It's a place of encouragement and support. And so if you're interested in joining a Facebook group about learning to BIM, it's it's for both beginners like me and maybe you, uh, and pros who may be you, you may be a pro, you may be, and it's, and it's, it's program agnostic, right? It's, this is not an ARCHICAD group. This is a BIM group. So everybody's welcome. This is not a, your software is better than my software place. In fact, there's a rule against that. We want you to share your experiences with all your software. This is about learning to BIM. This is not about learning ARCHICAD. This group is for all of us. So I encourage you to join it. Um, whether you're a beginner or a pro or somewhere in between, and let's do this together. I'm, I'm looking forward to learning about uh, your journey, and I'm going to share my journey there as well. Facebook.com slash groups slash learning to BIM. So that's my first update. I will periodically share all my progress here on the podcast at the very end, right? So listen to the end of very every episode. I'm going to add these updates at the very end as bonus content, just like I did with this episode. Um, after the regular episode is finished, after the love, learn, share, all of that done, then I'm going to give you an update. So don't miss them. I'm, and it's not going to be every week. So it's going to be periodically. 
to listen to the other and to the end of every episode to see what my next update is. Um, and I'd love to c- connect with you directly. Again, facebook.com slash groups slash learning to BIM. Share your thoughts. I want to know what you think about my progress and what's happening here. Um, if you're thinking about finally making that transition from CAD to BIM, I encourage you to reach out to our friends at Graphisoft. Check out that website, graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect. It's not just a great software. They're great people. Um, there's some free video content there, information about the essentials package, information about how to purchase um, uh, ARCHICAD if you're interested. Go there, graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect. That's important. Graphisoft.com slash US slash Entree Architect. And you could see how Graphisoft is positioned to help us uh, architecture firms succeed. So that's it. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you at the next update as I continue learning to BIM. Have a great day. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this. I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. One that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected 
annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.